Encounter Church. I am so glad you are here today on this beautiful October morning. So one of the biggest struggles in human history, especially when it came to cities, was the issue of fire. Fire was one of those things, especially in the ancient world where oftentimes things were constructed of wood or some type of organic material that would quickly burn down. Fire was this perennial problem that would oftentimes sweep in and destroy months, years, or decades worth of construction, kill lives, destroy people. And so one of the things that's always been trying to advance forward is this industry of firefighting. And in 1900, the London Fire Brigade came up with what many would have considered to be one of the most clever inventions in firefighting history. See, the idea was water seems to be the thing that's the key to fire. So let's, you know, to maybe save some more lives, instead of just shooting water at the fire, let's actually surround our firefighter with a wall of water. They'll be able to walk into burning buildings regardless of how uncertain it is, and the water will protect the firefighter like a shield. And so the London Fire Brigade, equipped with this latest technological breakthrough, walked into a burning building and quickly discovered there was a problem. You see, fire and water don't mix very well. They have a byproduct that comes out pretty consistently, one that they never really paid attention to before when it was at the end of their hose. It was steam. As the firefighters walked into those burning buildings with their wall of water to protect them, the fire bumping up against that water and the heat in the building would actually flash the water coming out of the nozzle above their head and turn it into steam. And so firefighters, ironically, in an attempt to not get burned, had created a solution that was causing them to get burned. Steam was flying all over their face, giving them far more damaging effects than they'd ever had before on the typical firefighting job. And in some ways, I think this is a, a fitting metaphor for what I want to talk about over the next two weeks. That I want to lean in and have a family discussion around this idea of church. Because I think it's quite possible, especially in this culture of hyper-extremism and everybody's got an opinion, that maybe in the process of some of our own personal journeys or some of our own current practices that we've missed what the church was meant to be. I don't mean the building. I don't mean 18 Southwest Park where we're located. I mean the people and what was supposed to be the defining trait of the people. And I think that in some ways what makes this so tricky for us when we try to define the church or what the church is meant to look like is that you can have all the right pieces, but if you get them out of order, it can still lead to devastating results. When an institution becomes insular and self-focused and content on protecting the hierarchy, devastating things can happen in the shadows because of it. Like the London Fire Brigade, they had the water, they knew water fixed fire, but they put it in the wrong place with the wrong focus. And as a result, people got hurt. And yet I believe in the church I didn't grow up in the church. I became a Christian in college. And one of the things that enthralled me, one of the reasons I do what I get to do, is because I absolutely, positively believe 
that the church is one of the most extraordinary people on planet earth. That we're a people who are completely free and released from so many things that hold so many uh, other organizations back. In fact, I'd say it like this, that we are meant to be like stars in the sky. We're meant to shine and to make a difference and to be hope. And yet, sometimes we miss it. And so I want to look candidly at a couple different passages that speak to what the church is meant to be. If you're joining us online or on site and you're not a Christian, then I'm going to give you all the fuel you ever need to start a bigger fire when you talk about Christians. But I hope for the Christians in the room, for the ones listening online or joining us this week through the podcast, that I add fuel to your fire for you to reimagine how God can use you when you walk into a room. And to do that, I want to take you to a passage that, quite honestly, on its surface, may make us feel a little bit uncomfortable because it feels unrealistic. It was written by a man named Paul, who was the most prolific writer of the New Testament. He was a man whose life had been transformed, and in the course of that transformation, he became convinced that Jesus was distinct and unique amongst all other people in human history. That it was, in fact, God Almighty, and that he leveraged his life to do that, and as a result, he ended up in places that he never intended to go. One of them was prison, and it was out of this place in prison Yes, Joyce's phone, you can skip that. Um, um, out of that place in prison, um, he ends up writing this letter that I want to look at today um, from Philippians 2, 14 and 15. So, um, and to make sure I get this clear, there's a remote back there. If somebody just wants to bring it to me, I know how to clear this. We're going to decline that because we don't want Joyce's phone to share um, from this Smart televisions can make you feel dumb. All right, thank you. Okay, so um, <laughs> Philippians 2, 14 through 15. Do everything without grumbling or arguing. So I'm not even going to continue the passage because let's just be real. That first statement feels a little unrealistic. Paul automatically out the gate leaves us with no exemptions. He says, do everything. Well, what about something? Nope, everything. Like everything, everything? Yes, everything, everything. There's no caveats, there's no by the ways, there's no, in this case, yes, it's everything. And he says, what's the mark, this group of people in Philippi, the church that he writes a letter that we call Philippians. He says, one of the things that should mark you, that should describe you, that should define you, is your posture and attitude that you do everything without grumbling or arguing or complaining. And he says, so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God, without fault, in a warped and crooked generation. Joyce is really wanting to be a part of this today. All right? I'm just saying. Um, and so he's laying this out. And here's the thing that I think is really important to understand this specific passage. Is that I think what Paul is doing here is actually pointing to something underneath the surface. Because Arguing, grumbling, and complaining is pretty much what you call most of the internet, right? I mean, think about social media feeds. Think about what we rant about. We live in a culture in a day in an age that's radically different. I have to be honest. I'm going to go ahead and age myself. One of the things that growing up as like a Gen Xer, no one cared about my opinion. I don't know if that was your case. 
But when I was growing up, they were like, you're young, you have no clue, your opinion doesn't matter. When you're an adult, you can have an opinion, but then you'll be out my house, and so I don't even care what that opinion is. Right? It was just when you were growing up, if you were a kid, you didn't have an opinion. You couldn't comment on certain things. You couldn't have some kind of expectation that you would be able to speak to common things. And so when I look at the news and look at news feeds, I'm oftentimes realizing I've got a generational struggle because I'm like, why do people feel the need to air their opinions for everyone else to read? And this isn't a rant, probably. Well, it's a rant. Okay, I'm going to be honest. This is a rant. This is not part of the message. Okay? I, like, I generationally, I don't connect with the desire just to, like, rant about things. I had a bad experience, so I'm going to rant about it. I had a negative thing, so I'm going to rant about it. Like, I just think no one honestly cares about my opinion. I don't know about you. I know that I'm saying that literally with a microphone talking about the Bible, but I think you don't even care about my opinion about the Bible, which frees me up to only give you not my opinion about the Bible, but what the Bible is saying. This is one of the things I love about what I get to do weekly, right? And so the grumbling and complaining thing just seems to be a staple of our culture. But here's the thing. Paul is writing this to a people who had grumbling and complaining as a staple of their culture too. And so while there may be some generational X people in here who can resonate with the idea of like, well, why are you even feeling what the internet does not care about your opinion, so you don't share it there. Like that, and maybe you kind of connect with that, but human-wise, we've always struggled with this grumbling, complaining issue. And Paul is writing this to a church that's dealing with this very problem. And I think he chooses to focus on grumbling and complaining because it seems small but it's actually pointing to something really big. So um, this is a picture of one of the most famous iconic mountains in the U.S. It's a picture that is no longer up to date because in May of 1980, this mountain experienced a 5.0 earthquake, and in the course of the mountain shaking, it created one of the largest recording landslides in human history. Rock and ice began to tear down the northern face of Mount St. Helens. And in the process of tearing down the mountain, it began to dig into the ground and cause fissures to form, releasing a pressure that had been building up for decades. That release of pressure, that break in the surface because of that landslide, caused an eruption that sent a plume of smoke and ash 12 miles into the sky. It released in this moment because of the carving out of the land in the midst of the landslide. This eruption that broke out had more power than 500 of the atomic bombs that we dropped in World War II. Ten million trees were instantly flattened in the course of this eruption. For 12 miles around this mountain, things had just been completely laid on its side. Thousands and thousands of animals perished, and it was devastating. And what happened that morning, what caused all of this was something small on the outside that unleashed something on the inside. And I think when Paul points out the grumbling and complaining, he recognizes that grumbling and complaining often is revealing something deeper inside. That grumbling and complaining is coming out of the inside. A lack of peace, 
a lack of contentment within, not the circumstances around. And that that type of pent-up explosion can be devastating in our lives. This is, in fact, Mount St. Helens as it stands today, almost 2,000 feet shorter than it was 40 years ago, all because something externally finally revealed what was going on internally. I think Paul recognized that grumbling, grumbling, complaining, arguing is really a reflection of the lack of inner peace. And so he, he focuses on this small thing because of the huge implications for what's within. But if you were to zoom out of that immediate sentence and you look at the grander context, you would notice that there's actually something bigger at play. See, right before this sentence that I read, Paul writes one of the longest, one of the earliest songs in Christian history. He records one of the earliest poems that we have um, in, in, in history around Christianity about Jesus specifically. In Philippians 2, 5, 6, he writes this, In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage which kind of speaks to that fire brigade thing that oftentimes we use as the church. Sometimes, if we're not careful, we use our faith as a weapon to hit the world instead of a light to shine into the world. That through the pandemic, when I believe the world was looking for hope and peace, some of us saw our faith as a, a way of kind of maybe attacking in fact, one of the things that broke my heart in the middle of that pandemic was that I knew people who would look at the church because of what Christians were doing and saying, and that through the pandemic, this was one of those rare times in human history that maybe the church wasn't known for running towards the fire and helping. We were more complaining about the fire, lashing out against culture or mask or no mask or vaccines, no vaccines. And politics that we we became defined that I saw more Christians on my newsfeed not from this church because you're so much better than that <laughs> but from other churches who were no more for the heat than they were the light that they had on the inside people who I knew who had hope and peace and what I saw them doing on their newsfeed was ripping other people to pieces because they didn't have the same opinion they had. And yet, Paul makes it very explicit that Jesus, being God himself, did not leverage that to his advantage. He walked into the room differently than how most people walked in. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant. Being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by being obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every other name. The very name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the first worship song written in the church. Paul saying, hey, I know that what oftentimes marks our minds when we think about Jesus is the crucifixion, but he's not dead anymore. What marks the Christian faith isn't just the crucifixion, it's the resurrection. If we really wanted to walk around 
with jewelry of hope, we would carry an, 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 a tomb whose rock had been rolled away. Because that's the hope we have. That Jesus is still alive. And that not only is he alive, that in demonstrating his power over death, he demonstrated he had an authority to do more than anyone had ever done before. And that he is the one who is truly the maker, creator, sustainer, the strength giver, the life breather. He is the hope, the forgiveness, the grace, the joy, the peace. He is that name that's above all our names. What a wonderful name that is, that beautiful name that is the name of Jesus, right? Like, that was what we just sang. That was a modern version of this song that Paul wrote. That he tore the veil. That he broke the chains. That he made a way. And Paul says, if we believe this, and he embeds this in this next passage when he says, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Notice the quotation marks. He's alluding to something. He's alluding to a passage found in the book of Deuteronomy, which was the fifth book in the Jewish Old Testament. It was one of those core books, arguably one of the most important books in the Jewish scriptures. Jesus quotes more from the book of Deuteronomy than any other book in the course of his ministry. It was a foundational book to the Jewish faith. And that Paul takes them back to Deuteronomy to a description of what God said about Israel and the way that they were meant to live their lives. He said, look, we're meant to be the people of God. People who understand that they're the children of God. Who walk with the holy swagger of knowing that God is for them and with them. In a previous season of my life, I used to travel a lot and Um, Because of that, I earned status, and I always loved whenever my daughter would travel with me because when they would be like, American Airlines is paging all platinum customers, right? So at that point, I had a platinum status, and I would stand up, and I would walk to the counter, and my daughter would come up with the swagger of somebody who'd been flying all around the world, flashing her ticket, looking at all the other people being like, ha-ha, and then strolling on the airplane. My daughter had done nothing to earn that. She had done absolutely spent no money to gain any of that. She hadn't sat in airports delayed and had to spend the night in hotels or sleep in a chair. She had done none of those things. And yet she walked through that ticketing gate like she owned American Airlines because she had status because of her father. Because that's what happens when you're the child of someone. You get their status. You get their privileges. You get their benefits. Some of your kids have no clue how good they got it. Because they didn't go to college, they didn't work hard, they didn't have two jobs, they didn't stay up late, they didn't make that investment, they didn't sacrifice and struggle. But they get all the benefits of what you've done as parents. They walk in your status. And they stroll in your strength and accomplishments. He's saying you are the children of God. Just like Israel, church in Philippi, church in Westwood, Massachusetts. You are under his authority, his status. And what that does is it makes you walk a little different. It makes you move through life a little bit more confident and secure, even if life is not confident 
and secure. And he makes the point without fault, not perfection. He's saying that there's nothing about you that reveals that there's anything underneath you outside of the confidence and security. There is no landslide that's going to rip open the insecurity and the uncertainty and the anxiety and the worry. You are without fault in a warped and crooked generation. He said, in Israel walking into a nation, the world was broken, the people were broken. The, I mean, right, we've all had a master's level course in the brokenness in the world because a bat sneezed whatever tens of thousands of miles from here and is cascaded. When you go grocery shopping, you're reminded of how broken the world is because you look on the aisles and you're like, why can't I buy pasta? Or where is paint? Or why are those specific, you know, light bulbs hard to find? It's because the world is broken and interconnected and a broken piece over here ripples around to this brokenness over here. And he's saying, look, to the, the ones in the ancient world, to the ones in the little bit more modern world of Rome, and to the ones who are alive today, the world is broken. And the beauty is that you walk as children of God without fault. And this is why he says to them, then, because of all of that, because of who he is and because of who you are in him, you should shine among them like stars in the sky. As you hold firmly to the word of life. He's like, your life is meant to look different. You're meant to respond differently. And the challenge with this passage that I, I think can maybe kind of mess us up a little bit is he says like stars, but he actually doesn't write stars. That's the English translation. He writes a broader term that really more alludes to the sun or the moon, which I think is actually a more fitting illustration for how we do this practically. I don't know about you, but I am fascinated by space. Um, I still read about space regularly. I am very strange, and I recognize that. And my wife sometimes are like, oh, what are you reading? And I'm like, you don't want to know. You really, I'm just going to bore you. So I'm going to go ahead and tell you I'm going to choose to not share what I'm reading unless you want to know about some pulsar star that they're zeroing in right now and some recent experiment that's been really fascinating. She's like, okay, yep, yep, that's it. I'm good. You know, I'm going to keep doing what I'm doing. I'm like, all right, told you. So, but this summer, I got to look through a telescope for the very first time and see the moon. Um, I don't know how it took me this long in life to get to a telescope to see the moon through the telescope. And it was like, like, ha, ha. I mean, it was amazing to me. This is exactly what I saw. I could see the craters and the coloration, and I realized, man, this thing got hit a lot. Like, it's, you know, like, this has been tore up, and I'm so glad whatever's been hitting it hadn't hit us, because that looks rough, right? I mean, the moon looks tired, is, is what I was like. The moon is, the moon is a parent of a toddler right now. I mean, it's just wore out. And so, but um, what I really, because of my nerdness, a lot of times that impacts how I parent which means I do things that my daughter drives, it drives her insane. I'm like driving down, and I'm like, Ella, look at the moon tonight, because the moon is really bright. Um, actually, the moon only reflects about 3 to 12% of the brightness. But anyways, so, um, so I'm like, wow, look how bright the moon is tonight. And she's like, yeah, that's awesome, moon brightness. I'm like, Ella, do you know where the moon gets its light from? Is the moon shining bright because it has a light? 
She's like, no, Dad, the moon reflects the sun. And I'm like, yes, I thought I was going to have a teaching opportunity. I'm like, yes, yes, it does. Did you know it only reflects 3 to 12%? Right? But this is, a, I, this is, I remember the first time that hit me, and it blew my mind. She was clearly smarter than I was at her age. Because the moon at night, especially the really big, big moon, it's so bright. And you can light up a night, you know, like growing up playing in the field and doing some type of like capture the flag or something late in the evening. And it's a full moon could light up an entire field to play a game. And you just kind of assume the moon must have its own light source. And then it was like that moment the light bulb kind of clicked for me that there is no light bulb there. That it's just dirt and rock. But that when it's in proper position to the sun, even dirt and rock can shine and be brighter than the stars. It's all about its posture. It's all about its position. And being in the presence of something that's brighter than it. And that can literally light up a night sky. And I think when Paul was talking about who we are as the church and what we're meant to look like, this was it. That when we, as Christians, recognizing who we are as children of God, what that grace really means, what that forgiveness really means, what that peace and joy really means, what it really means when we say he's got the whole wide world in his hand. When we really understand that there is nothing greater, that there is no power stronger than him, then it changes how we walk into storms in life. That instead of being overwhelmed by the mountain that is trembling, we're able to be reminded that our God is the one who made that mountain and who can move that mountain when we stand and stare at storms of life that feel like they're going to take us under and we feel the temptation to begin to grumble and complain and and to, to kind of anxiously fret about that storm or those finances or that moment, that we take a step back and realize, no, 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 I need to introduce that storm to my God because my God is greater than that storm. And to say, hey, Storm, have you ever met my God? Oh, yeah, he's the one who's been faithful to provide every single day in my life. You don't get this big during a pandemic because God didn't feed you. All right, Storm? Testify, belly, to what I see in front of me. God has made a way before, and he can do it again. If God was raising up Christ Jesus from the dead, conquering sin and death and shame and guilt, and bringing joy and peace and life everlasting, then the God who did that is the God who is still with me, present with me, for me in this moment. So, Storm, you might want to sit down because my God is bigger and greater and stronger and so much better than what you have against me. Right? Like this is what this looks like. This is why right before all of that, no grumbling, no complaining, he talks about Jesus and who Jesus is. Because it's really hard to complain when you're living at that plane of understanding who God is and that he's with you and for you. 
When you're at that place, at that level, it changes how you see everything. And that no matter how big or how strong or how challenging the circumstances, I know that God with me is greater than the circumstances before me. And it changes how I live out my life. But the passage and the illustration embedded inside of it has a warning. That the moon is only as bright as its position to the light. And I think in the moments when we forget who he is, when we forget what he has done, when we get so fixated on the things in our life that we lose sight of the one who gave us life, we start to grow dimmer. That's why I alluded earlier that it broke my heart with reading the news feeds through the pandemic because I thought we had one of the most amazing opportunities to shine and to show hope. But when we fixate on the wrong things, then what happens is we start to reflect that darkness too. And that it really does change you and me. And that we can be bright and shine his light. Like Paul says, when we hold firmly, persistently, consistently to the word of life, to who he is, to what he's done, whether that's through intentional engagement in our app. I've created a resource this summer that we'll continue to add on to in the future called Thought Life, which was essentially just like, hey, here are a few things to teach you how to conceptually do this. And inside of our app, you can find anxiety, and it gives you a passage and a guided prayer for you to start to realize what does it look like practically to hold firmly to the word of life. There's five different examples in the Thought Life piece inside of the app. And that Another opportunity to do this is through the 112 where I teach people how to read the Bible and how to engage with the Bible. One of the things I'm working on right now that I'm really excited about that I'm going to have that I'll be sharing more about is uh, a book study on the life of Jesus called Mark. And it's the study of the book of Mark. And what does it look like to be marked by him? To have your life reflect him? And so you'll hear more about this in the coming weeks, but this is just something to put on your radar because I want to help you. I want to help me, my family, to, to understand what does it look like to live in a correct posture before God so that his light shines bright through me. And that this isn't a pipe dream. This is meant to be the defining mark of our lives. That people notice our patience and our kindness and our gentleness. People notice the way we use our words is different than the ones around us. Why? Because the God who is the word gave us life. And so maybe our life, our word should give people life. And it starts to affect how we think about how we parent, how we do marriage, how we do work, how we do fights and arguments and how we do our taxes and how we do everything in between. That we're reflecting him in the process. And that when people see his light through us, that they don't get impressed with the moon. They get drawn to the sun. And that in the process, we would start to shine like stars in the sky. And so the reason I said this is a two-week is because obviously I just started the conversation. There's a whole other week 
And in case you're like, well, what do I do with what you've said? Well, here's just the first thing. How about this week? According to what Paul just said, do everything without grumbling or complaining to reflect Jesus through our lives. Let's commit this week to be people who make more than a point. Let's to be people who with our lives, with how we leverage our lives, start to, st- to look around our lives and say, how can I make a difference? And I think if we're willing to just start here this week, committing to, you know what, instead of making points, I'm going to make a difference, then maybe we really can shine like stars in the sky. Let's pray. God, thank you. Thank you for the privilege that you give us, the opportunity that you give us to be a part of what you're doing here on this earth, in this community. Pray that you would help to help us reimagine our lives for those areas where we feel we failed as parents or as spouses or as family members or friend or anything in between that you would remind us that your reckless love your pursuing love is still for us that instead of holding our heads down low because of the guilt and the shame that we feel, that we would lift our eyes to you, who is the God who gives grace, who removes shame, who brings life, and gives hope. And for those who are in this room, online, or even listening this week, God, who are wondering, what does that even look like? Because they're not sure if they even know you, that today would be the day that they would begin that process whether it's in just simply turning to you and extending their arms and their hearts open and saying, God, I'm sorry, please forgive me. Cover me. Help me to walk and follow you, Jesus. And that you would release into their life your power, your spirit, your light. God, and I pray that this week, because of you, that the world would be a little bit brighter through us as we carry your light into a world that desperately needs it, into our homes that desperately need it. And it's in your name, Jesus, I pray. Amen. And I want to thank you so much for being